the only thing you have any control over is the work that you choose to do at any given time. The outcome of your efforts is not in your hands. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Hello, everyone. It is my immense pleasure today uh, to, to introduce Dr. Ankur Kalra. Um, Dr. Ankur Kalra is a qualified interventional cardiologist and associate professor of medicine. Ankur has an educational history that boasts an extremely broad pedigree, including the All India Institute of Medical Sciences, Harvard, the Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center, and the London School of Economics and Political Science in the UK, just to name a few. He has contributed close to 300 scientific manuscripts and epitomizes the contemporary academic. Over the last several years, Dr. Kalra's academic interests have pervaded the realm of philosophy, including a deep study and synthesis of one of the most influential ancient philosophical discourses, the Bhagavad Gita. In the context, uh, in this context, I am absolutely thrilled and delighted to introduce Dr. Ankul Kalra, who will be integrating his experiences as a physician with the lessons learned in his studies in philosophy, as he will be speaking on religiosity and spirituality in medicine. In our profession, in the medical profession, um, it has come to light that technology has uh, far surpassed our ability to integrate um, all of these efforts within the care of our patients. And in that race uh, to provide the best care, sometimes we lose uh, track of who we are as human beings and what our ultimate goal is. Um, our uh, essence as human beings and our uh, uh, root in spirituality is something uh, that we need to uh, uh, take interest in. And I think that Ankur will allow us uh, to frame shift ourselves back to who we are. And for this reason, this particular grand round in religiosity and spirituality, I would consider as paramount um, for our listeners uh, here today. Well, thank you for having me and thanks for the generous introduction. Um, I know this could be an esoteric topic, so just a raise of hands. How many of you believe in the concept of mindfulness? Just a raise of hands. Okay. And how many of you practice it? Well, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote from this morning. Um, so I was, um, I, I got a really nice email from Elizabeth yesterday and Heather was copied. And I was told that I, I'm supposed to be uh, in room 326 and it's the Van Nuys Medical Building. So, you know, like I prepare for any talks, I Google it and I'm, I look at the distance from my house and I plan the ride this morning. So I get her at 6.50. And then it's a nice, cool morning. And then it's like, oh, this is going to be a nice walk up to the building. And then I enter the building and then I can't seem to find the third floor. <laughs> it says in this building, it says floor one, floor two, and then it says floor four and floor five. And then there's nobody around for me to ask. So then I start getting a little nervous, you know, like I'm supposed to be doing a grand round stock and here I am and I can't seem to find 326. So... I pull up the email from Elizabeth and there it's, it gives a cell phone number for Heather. She was very kind. So I dialed the cell phone number and it says that it's switched off. <laughs> so then I said, okay, maybe there's an issue. So let me just send a text. So I send a text that I'm here 
I actually take a picture of the lobby where I'm at and I send that picture. And apparently, do you use an Android? Yes. Yes. And I use an iPhone, so you can't get the delivery report. <laughs> so you see how it keeps getting better. Um, and then I said, okay, well, let me just write an email. So I write an email. And uh, knowing that it'll be hard to get a response at like 6.55. And then I'm, and then I'm like, okay, I'm just going to practice mindfulness. I'm here. I'm in the moment. Everything is fine. It's beautiful outside. I'm healthy. My kids are healthy. It's going to be okay. And then in about 10 minutes, I hear from Heather. So with that preamble, um, we're going to start talking about religiosity and spirituality in medicine. And I thought that for this talk, I'll break it down to, to two sections. You know, I'll give the patient perspective, which was the, the piece which was published in the European Heart Journal in 2021. And then I'm going to, I'm going to bring the physician perspective. So, um, I think it's important to look at this from both the, the patient side and the, and the provider side. Um, so this is the paper, um, it's titled heart, mind, and soul spirituality in cardiovascular medicine. Um, it's interesting. Uh, there's an anecdote to this paper, which I'll share, but let me, let me present the patient perspective first. Spirituality, the, how you how you define spirituality, and I think there's an overlap between spirituality and religiosity, and that's why I put the front slash and these these terms are interchangeable, but there is a slight difference in that spirituality is naturally occurring phenomenon where one seeks a connectedness with a higher purpose or force. It lies outside of ordinary experience, existence and in, in, inherently is associated with an overarching meaning of life. Um, so experiences like oneness and unconditional love, um, they may occur within the religious context, but they are very personal experiences. And although mindfulness and yoga are secular spiritual practices, and this is why these terms are interchangeable, um, these practices are very secular and they're not associated with any particular religion. They were developed within the broader context of Buddhism and Hinduism, respectively. So mindfulness comes from uh, the you know, the Buddhist school of thought and literature and yoga uh, comes from the Hinduism school of thought and literature. Uh, the limitation is that it, you know, spiritual experiences and how people define them and, you know, when they start talking about them and people who haven't experienced this, experienced these or, you know, have had these experiences in life because uh, each one of us are on our own paths, you know, it may not objectively fit into parameters of language per se because it's, it's actually a feeling. Um, you know, that assesses emotional, behavioral, and cognitive measures to describe it. And these experiences occur in wordless states. Um, you know, what one defines as God or divine may not apply to someone else having the same experience. So it's difficult to quantify. It's difficult to, um, to measure it. So, you know, it, it, for, for a scientific audience, uh, you know, who are very pragmatic and data-driven, um, it's sort of, quote-unquote, out there, uh, unless you experience it yourself. And then you realize that it's real. And then you sort of seek the literature behind it, which was sort of my journey when I experienced this in 2018. Um, so, uh, you know, this is a diagram from the paper, but I think, um, I, I, had, I mean, I'm sure all of, all of you have looked at Venn diagrams and, and also have come across a very popular social media figure, which talks about Ikigai. Do you know what, do you know what Ikigai is? It's the... It's the perfect spot in the Venn diagram, which, you know, meets your vocation, gets you a salary, is your hobby, 
and serves a purpose. And if you check all those four boxes, then the middle, the middle portion of that Venn diagram is, is your Ikigai. So similarly, I think, uh, you know, spirituality encompasses all these facets in our life. Uh, perception of health and disease, uh, our own lifestyle and habits, uh, the healthcare choices we make, our patients make, and cultural and moral norms. Um, and I think if you look at all these facets of life, spirituality encompasses all of them and sort of is the final common pathway of decision-making for a lot of patients, including, you know, us uh, as, as providers. Um, so let me talk a little bit about the physiology of spiritual experiences. And, you know, this is getting to the science of spirituality, if you will, um, maybe an oxymoron, but, you know, I'm going to do my best, um, Close proximity of data actually come from meditative practices uh, to spontaneous experiences, which form basis for an understanding of the neuropsychophysiological effects of meditation. And people have studied this and they've tried to bucket this in, in, in two aspects. You know, one is arousal and the other is relaxation. And, you know, you can attain spiritual experiences by both arousal and relaxation. And I'm going to give you some examples. Uh, so this is, again, uh, it's a schematic from the paper which we published in the European Heart Journal, and I'll, I can share copies of the papers with Heather for distribution in, in case anyone is interested. Um, so arousal, so, you know, before I even start to go through the, uh, through, through the, through the schema here, um, think about it uh, in terms of the, the systems, you know, so the autonomic nervous system is where it all starts. And then it percolates down to endocrine and the, and the immune system and then the central nervous system. Um, so with, with let, let's talk about relaxation first, because that is where most of the meditation works. Um, what happens with, with meditation is that you start accessing alpha and theta waves, um, which most of us don't have access to in our normal states of consciousness. And when that happens, uh, there is a predominance of parasympathetic activity, which then results in controlled hormonal and inflammatory responses. And I'm going to share some examples, which then results in a decrease in anxiety, stress, and depression. On the contrary, arousal, which actually is a form of meditation as well. It's called tantric meditation. It's very popular in, in, in the East and certainly in India. Uh, there is an increase in the sympathetic tone, um, which has an effect on the inflammatory cascade and oxidative stress and causes an increase in psychosocial stress factors. Now, how that actually works uh, to, attain a, to, to attain a meditative state, I do not know because I'm, I'm of the relaxation school of thought because uh, that's the one that's, that's helped me um, you know, as a person and as a physician. Um, so mindfulness, uh, I'm going to try and define mindfulness. It's a moment to moment. I'm going to take some time defining it. And if you have any questions, please feel free to raise your hands. It's a moment-to-moment non-judgmental focus on the content of one's mental and physical experience and a progressive awareness of its presence um, to the point that when you're taking a flight of stairs, you're mindful of taking each step and you're mindful of every breath and you're mindful of every word that you're saying and you're mindful of every person that you are seeing. So you are actually in the moment. And a good allegory for me, at least as a proceduralist, is either in the operating room or in the cath lab, because that to me is the most meditative state in my own consciousness. I am very in the moment when I'm in the cath lab. I am not thinking about the response reviewers to a paper. I'm not thinking about 
uh, chores at home. I'm not thinking about what I have to do uh, in the evening with my kids or what I have to have for dinner or what, what I have to have for lunch. I'm so in the moment. I'm so in the moment with the steps of the procedure in front of this. I'm looking at the screen in front of me and I'm so in the moment that I do not think about anything else but that moment alone. And that is a true meditative state. I mean, that's what meditation tries to do. The meditation tries to bring you in the now, in the present. And so for, and this is anesthesia, so all of you are very facile with how the ORs work. And I think if you are, if you think about moments when you're completely in the now, at least for me as a proceduralist is when I'm actually doing a procedure, it's very meditative for me. Um, and so that's the concept of mindfulness. So if I can extrapolate that essence or that being of being in the OR or in the procedure room to my life outside the OR or the cath lab, um, I think I'll be living in a very meditative state, but it's very, very hard to do because uh, we all have a monkey mind and we keep having thoughts one after the other. And it's just an incessant train of thought. And the idea of living a mindful life is to just being in the moment and being in the now so much so that the only thing you're thinking of is the now. Because the minute you think about the now, the now is gone and then you have the next moment. Uh, transcendental meditation is, is using a word or a phrase and trying to return to attention. So if someone, which is, what, which is how people actually start meditation, you know, they, they usually sign up for a class, there is a teacher or, or a seasoned practitioner of meditation and he or she is going to give you a phrase or a word and you keep chanting that word and keep focusing on that word. You know, the most common one is Om. Um, you know, Ramdas, who is uh, the, late, the late Richard Alpert would, would keep saying, um, you know, be here now, be here now, be here now. And I'm loving awareness. So I think these are some of the words or phrases that seasoned practitioners use to bring, you know, each of us back to the now. Um, and, you know, again, the more you practice, the better you get at it. So both techniques have shown uh, to result in a wakeful hypermetabolic state of parasympathetic predominance. And what that does is it actually decreases heart rate, blood pressure, and respiratory rate. Now there is a contrasting technique, and I, I think I alluded to this when I was going over arousal, and that is the technique of Vajrayana, which is a, a meditative technique, which is a technique of single-pointed concentration and visualization. And it leads to aroused wakefulness. I have never practiced this. So I can't speak much about it, but I can attest to the wakeful hypometabolic state of, um, of mindfulness and, and transcendental meditation. So, you know, I'm going to talk about some of the hormonal and immunological effects which have been demonstrated um, through, through studies. And, you know, investigators have shown um, a decrease in NFK beta activity. They've shown a decrease in Circulating levels of C-reactive protein, which you know, all of us know is, a, is, a, is an inflammatory marker. It's been shown to be of causative mechanism, you know, even in acute myocardial infarction. And there is a, a neat study done in HIV positive patients in which they showed that those who were subjected to transcendental meditation actually had an increase in CD4 plus cells, which was um, independent of um, the antiviral therapy that they were on. Uh, which I thought was fascinating. Now, uh, there is one study, and I've, I've put here, I've put this as, as the last, um, you know, phrase here, which is telomerase activity. It, the telomerase length is associated with our biological age. So our chronological age is, you know, 40 and 41 and 42. 
And then we have a biological age where we could actually be younger than the chronological age. And there are studies out there which have shown that in, in people who practice meditation and mindfulness, uh, their telomerase uh, length is longer compared with those who do not practice mindfulness and, and meditation. And the longer your telomere length is, the less your biological age is, uh, irrespective of your chronological age. Um, and then you have uh, neuroimaging in which, you know, it has been demonstrated that people who regularly meditate, particularly, and this is done in the monks, actually, there was an increase in the activation of both the frontoparietal lobes, which is the center of intelligence, and also the thalamic and the limbic system, which controls our emotional intelligence. So there is the IQ and there is the EQ, and there was an increase in both. Uh, I mean, the, there's an increase in the activity in, in both these centers in the brain, both IQ and EQ. In, in daily practitioners of meditation. And, you know, this study was from University of Wisconsin in which they looked at uh, some of the, the monks and did MRIs on them. Um, and that's what they found. So um, this is pertaining to cardiovascular uh, outcomes. And this was the focus of the paper, you know, it was published in the European Heart Journal. And it's funny, like each time you write a paper like this and you send it to, you know, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology or some of the American journals, it's like an instantaneous desk rejection. And then uh, this has been my experience at least. And, you know, both are, um, you know, very highly read journals in cardiology, the European Heart Journal and the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And then I turn around and without revising, I send this to the European Heart Journal and it's a desk acceptance without any revisions. It's, so it's funny how, you know, the American journals are still, I, I, resistance may be not the best word to describe it, but not as not as receptive to to these concepts as as the European journals are. There was a study which showed that infrequent religious attendance was associated with higher rates of cardiovascular mortality over a follow up of thirty one years, and this was replicated in the nurses' health study, which actually showed a thirty three percent reduction in all cause mortality among women attending a religious service more than once a week. Um, coming to transcendental meditation there was a 48% reduction in all-cause mortality during a five, almost a five-year follow-up with a 24% risk reduction in the composite secondary endpoint of cardiovascular deaths, revascularization, and cardiovascular hospitalization. And then I don't, I'm sure all of you interface with atrial fibrillation as anesthesiologists and you see a lot of patients with atrial fibrillation. There is a well-established connection with the autonomic nervous system and, and the genesis of atrial fibrillation. Because there is, in patients with atrial fibrillation, there is an increase in the sympathetic tone, which causes vagal overcompensation, which causes a shortened refractory period, which causes atrial fibrillation. And there is published literature in the cardiovascular space, which has shown that you can diminish the burden of atrial fibrillation with yoga training. Um, and you can do that because yoga, like mindfulness, like I said in that schema, works on, works on the autonomic nervous system and decreases, increases parasympathetic activity, decreases the sympathetic tone. And that has both effects on the hormonal and the, and the immune system, but also on the central nervous system. Um, so, you know, with, when it comes to, um, at least in the cardiovascular, cardiovascular literature, and I don't know about other specialties, you know, there are studies which have shown all these four aspects. A decrease in all-cause mortality, a decrease in major adverse cardiovascular events, decrease in arrhythmic burden, as well as a decrease in 
the burden of risk factors, so risk factor modification, because not only did spiritual practices help decrease all-cause and cardiovascular mortality, they also helped you know, mitigate uh, worsening of some of the risk factors like diabetes and high blood pressure. So with that, um, I'm going to be switching to a provider perspective from a patient perspective. Um, so a, a medical crisis is also a spiritual crisis. And, you know, physician and providers are recipients and witnesses uh, to the diverse expression of spirituality. Um, and it's important to assess spiritual needs, you know, of both, I think, patients as well as providers and their loved ones. And, you know, physicians or providers, patients and their family members together explore spiritual and ethical issues. And, and we do this on a day-to-day -day basis without even realizing it. Um, so this is a paper which was published last year in October. Um, and I think within a week after it was published, it had 10,000 downloads. And I'll be happy to share this paper with you because I think it resonated with the question that you asked and it resonated with a lot of the um, cardiovascular providers and professionals who like anesthesiologists, or I think physicians at large, are type A go-getter uh, intense personalities. Um, a 57-year-old woman, newly diagnosed with metastatic lung carcinoma, is hospitalized for dyspnea. A clinical diagnosis of cardiac tamponade is suspected and confirmed by three cardiologists after reviewing echocardiography findings. Following discussion with the patient's oncologist, urgent pericardiocentesis is uniformly recommended. Doctor, is this necessary? Will I be okay? How serious is this? She frantically asks. You reassure her and her anxious family, educating them about the need for the urgent procedure. She provides informed consent, hugs her family, and is wheeled into the catheterization laboratory. Using echocardiographic guidance, you access the pericardial cavity with a micropuncture needle, wire and sheets, confirming placement with an agitated saline study. You have done this dozens of times. You are well-versed with the highest standard of care in such scenarios. Verifying satisfactory positioning by transthoracic echocardiogram and fluoroscopy, you drain 200 cc's of serosanguinous fluid. As you continue to aspirate more fluid, she collapses. Pulseless electrical activity. All frantic resuscitative efforts are futile. The time of death is announced. Stillness and shock stifle the room. Second scenario. A 42-year-old man is resuscitated in the emergency room following ventricular tachyarrhythmia arrest. An electrocardiogram is consistent with an inferior ST elevation myocardial infarction. You inform his shock-ridden wife of the need for emergent coronary arteriography. The patient is rushed to the cardiac catheterization laboratory. There is evidence for acute plaque rupture in the proximal dominant right coronary artery. Ventricular fibrillation ensues. In accordance with the highest standards of care, the patient is successfully defibrillated and you perform the indicated primary percutaneous coronary intervention. Epicardial flow is instantaneously restored. The patient is monitored in the cardiac intensive care unit and sent home days later on appropriate guideline-directed medical therapy, post-acute myocardial infarction. During a follow-up visit a week later, he's accompanied by his grateful wife and 10-year-old daughter who brings you a handmade thank you card along with a box of treats for your staff. Joy and laughter fill the room. 
So what I've what I've described here is two scenarios which have happened to me in person. These are my own personal anecdotes. And these are two disparate outcomes. They're they're completely opposite to each other. And on one hand, there is joy and there is fulfillment and there's there's great victory. And on the other hand, there's defeat. And as clinicians and as proceduralists, all of us are going to face scenarios like this where we show up to work every single day as who we are with the same amount of dedication, same amount of training, same amount of knowledge, perhaps ever increasing knowledge. And we are going to do what's best for the patient to the best of our abilities. And we're going to have completely opposite outcomes. So how do we reconcile with that? So this is um, a very popular verse um, in the East, in India, at least it's a way of life. Um, and it's from the Bhagavad Gita, which is my spiritual guide. And this is a verse uh, from chapter two, it's verse 47. And the, the interpretation of the verse is as follows. The only thing you have any control over is the work that you choose to do at any given time. The outcome of your efforts is not in your hands, which is, is um, an antagonistic, it's a revolutionary concept in the West. Because in the West, we are so outcome-driven. We measure outcome, we do anything and everything to measure any and every outcome. And I'm going to talk more about it. But the fundamental principle of paradigm shift or tectonic shift here is that the outcome is not in our hands. You should neither take the outcome personally nor fall into the trap of thinking that doing nothing is better. Um, this may require uh, uh, you know, more teaching or more insight to understand. Um, and I'm happy to share my own insights, but, and if, you know, if anybody wants, we, I can read this again. I, I think I, I'll just read this again and I'll read it slowly because this is very important to understand this concept. The only thing you have any control over. So in, in the strike, in the, I don't know if anyone follows the strike philosophy, the strike literature in the strike philosophy, it's called the dichotomy of control. Uh, and this is how the Bhagavad Gita calls it. The only thing you have any control over is the work that you choose to do at any given time. The outcome of your efforts is not in your hands. You should neither take the outcome personally nor fall into the trap of thinking that doing nothing is better. So the Bhagavad Gita is an ancient text that influenced the life and works of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, it's a playbook for living an extraordinary life of dynamism, purpose and joy. In an exceedingly pragmatic manner, the Bhagavad Gita asks us to focus on a given task at hand perform it to the best of our ability, and then allow the chips to fall as they will. I mentioned the Stoic philosophy. The Stoic philosophy calls it the dichotomy of control. So letting go of outcomes, you know, some people say, well, the Bhagavad Gita is teaching you to let go of the outcomes. So you mean that you're shirking responsibility. It actually is the opposite. It is not shirking responsibility. It actually paves the path to owning up to one's responsibility without guilt, blame, or self-pity. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give you an example here, um, which I think is easier to understand. And that is archers have control over whether or not they obtain the best bow and arrow, their quality of training, and the extent to which they practice archery. Now, whether the 100th arrow will hit the bullseye the same way the previous 99 did is actually not guaranteed uh, because subtle wind is enough to deviate it. Um, so as healthcare providers, we, we must practice medicine through 
well-intentioned, evidence-based and timely decisions. What's in our control is planning ahead, is ensuring skilled and rested personnel, is appropriate equipment and resources. How a given patient will respond to therapy is not in our control. As much as we think it is, it isn't. Um, yet modern American medicine is driven by metrics. I mean, all of us are aware of this. And I'm going to enumerate all the metrics that we measure ourselves up against or we have quantified. Health systems continually, continually wipe for top spots in national and regional rankings. Every action by a healthcare provider generates a data point. Clinics are split into slots for utilization efficiency. Operating rooms and procedural laboratories push for efficient turnaround times. Clinical outcomes are reported juxtaposed to national benchmarks for safety and quality. And then you have the patient satisfaction surveys. So while such metrics are, are developed to ensure accountability and, and improve processes, and I'm, I'm all for improving processes, they place undue importance on what lies outside the scope of our control, and that is outcomes. What lies in our control is the effort that we put in. What does not lie in our control is the outcome. So irrespective of complexity or diligence, positive outcomes are lauded. Negative outcomes are disincentivized. And that leads to an unsavory effect of fostering blame and casting judgment, which leads to burnout. How then do we reconcile the concept of letting go of the outcome with our fundamental desire to making patients feel better and live longer? I think that's a question that I asked when I, I, when I examined the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and how can we remain unattached to the results of our actions when they are tallied and surveyed by authorities that can, quote unquote, make or break our careers? I think these are fundamental questions that will pop into each of our minds when we listen to a talk like this. So aiming for the best clinical outcome remains critical, right? Um, it is our North Star. And I think everything that we do in, in preparation is for having an excellent outcome. And that is what we should do. Uh, so the prerequisites are app preparation, you know, developed expertise, honing our skills and communication. Since no outcome is in our direct control, we must only focus on and our energies in the present moment on honing and perfecting our skills to the extent where employing our knowledge is the outcome. So the action itself is the fruit of the outcome. So with each passing moment, the only thing that you can do is the amount of effort that you're putting in and your own action, you cannot control the outcome. I think if you fundamentally understand this concept, you're going to do away with a lot of burnout and you're going to start finding new meaning in life. That the only thing that you can control is your action and anything that happens afterwards is not in your control. And you should just let go of that feeling of control. The downstream effects of... Um, so the, so the downstream effects of the thought process are a continuous stream of new events, each met with, with presence, each met with skill and knowledge to the best of our ability at that time. Um, so performing the appropriate action and anticipating the best outcome should be the focus, but there should be a deeper knowing that all possibilities exist for any outcome. And I think as long as we can reconcile with that as clinicians, I think that, that I, to, to me is, is the key to preventing you know, physician or clinician burnout. Um, so the critical teaching of Gita is not anticipating a good outcome, but letting go of the attachment of any particular outcome, good or bad. And we ought to remind ourselves that we became healthcare providers to make a difference. But if we remain attached to what that difference is going to look like, 
we will forever remain vulnerable to burnout. Maybe that answers your question about how to find happiness. Uh, so Gita lessons in mitigating burnout. So humility to continue learning, ongoing desire for growth, commitment to serve to the best of our ability, and taking grief and joy in stride, ever focused on the present moment rather than the results of our actions. Um, so, you know, that concludes the second sort of section of my talk. And I have, I have a resource library for, for any of you who is interested in, in this literature. Uh, these are some of the other papers I wrote for the European Heart Journal, uh, COVID-19 and the healthcare workers uh, at the time of the pandemic, uh, you know, also extrapolating from the Bhagavad Gita um, on how we should, should deal with the pandemic as healthcare providers. And then how many of you are familiar with the second term schadenfreude? Have, okay. So it is, um, it's, it's, an, it's unfortunate that it exists, but it does. And that is um, the human uh, nature of seeking pleasure in someone else's misery. Unfortunately, it sounds horrible, um, uh, but it, it exists. And it's actually very prevalent in medicine. And this was at least my own perception. Um, you know, when I was part of academic medicine and, you know, does the desire to succeed at all costs result in a detriment to the individual soul was what I examined in this paper. If anyone is interested, I'm happy to share a copy. Uh, but I think this is, uh, again, it falls into the same purview and literature of, you know, self-exploration. And then this is a paper which just came out this year, um, again, talking about, um, how we can learn from the monks, uh, to be better physicians. Uh, it's the physician and the monk also published in the European Art Journal because none of the American journals would take this and the European journals just take this in a jiffy. So, you know, I've at this point, it, that's become my pathway of least resistance. Um, and that's where I send all my, all my writings to. Um, so I'm happy to share this if anyone is interested. And, and finally, this is a, a colleague of mine. He's uh, the program director of cardiology fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. His name is Dr. Nandan Anavekar. And I found... Uh, a companion uh, in him in that his understanding of the spiritual and theological literature and how he applies those teachings to modern medicine, uh, you know, have resonated with me. So um, I host a podcast, uh, which is available on all the podcast platforms. And it's not only cardiology, it actually talks a lot of about such concepts uh, within medicine. Uh, and I recently recorded a mini series with him on self-exploration and outcome focused cardiology, but I think it could extrapolate to all of medicine. So if anyone is interested, feel free to take a listen and share feedback. I'm open to feedback and conversations like this. I think um, my final thoughts are that uh, in, in India or in the Eastern literature, at least, there's this concept of Sangha, which is, um, uh, which is togetherness. So I think if, if we are together in our spiritual paths, uh, we'll get to our destination sooner. Uh, and so the more, the merrier. And with that, Thank you for having me. I think it was a, an honor and a, and a privilege and a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.